The Old Testament reading for today is Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. The New Testament reading is 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. The title of today's sermon is The Church as Temple, Its Stones. Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, says Ezekiel, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry, very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. As I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the, the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let us go now to 1 Peter 2 and read verses 1 through 12. The sermon will be based upon this text this morning. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. This is Peter the Apostle writing to Christians who had been scattered abroad. And he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In this brief series, we are considering the church as it exists in the world today under the new covenant. And we are doing so according to the theme of temple. As you know, the church is called the temple of God in the New Testament. And so we are taking a bit of time to consider the implications of that. What are the implications of the fact that the church is the inauguration of God's eternal temple? In the previous sermon, we considered the foundation of God's temple church. The foundation is not made of stone, but it is Christ. Or to say it another way, the foundation of God's inaugurated eternal temple is the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. God's temple is not physical, it is spiritual. Its foundation stones are people filled with God's Spirit. The apostles and prophets are said to be foundation stones in this temple, not because of anything in themselves, but because of the message they proclaimed. And who did they proclaim ultimately? They proclaimed salvation through Christ, the promised Messiah, the anointed one of God with the Spirit beyond measure. The foundation of God's inaugurated eternal temple is Christ. The clear implication of this is that all who are a part of God's temple now and all who hope to be a part of God's temple in the new heavens and earth must be aligned with Christ and they must also trust in Him or depend upon Him. For He is the only foundation of God's eternal temple. Stated in another way, it will only be those who are aligned with Christ and who trust in Him as their eternal foundation, who will enjoy the glorious and gracious presence of God forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. Today we will shift our attention from the foundation of God's inaugurated eternal temple to the stones of this temple. And like with the foundation, the stones of God's temple are not made of stone. They are people. This is about God's Presence, brothers and sisters. This is about God dwelling in the midst of His people. This was 
even the point in those days when the tabernacle and later temple of God was constructed by Old Covenant Israel of material things like cloth and stone. Those physical structures were not made because God needed shelter, and neither were they made in order to make communion with God possible for people. No structure was needed in Eden, remember, nor was a physical structure necessary from the days of Adam to Moses. Men walked with God in those days, and they did not have a physical structure to contain God's presence. And we know that in the new heavens and earth there will be no physical tabernacle of cloth or temple of stone. Instead, all of God's renewed creation will be His tabernacle. There in that renewed creation, God will dwell in the midst of His people, and His people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will dwell with Him. We will enjoy His presence in that place. The physical tabernacle... And the physical temple of Old Covenant Israel were not needed to make communion with God possible. In fact, God created everything in the beginning that was necessary for man to have communion with Him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and these were to be a temple for Him so that His people might enjoy His presence. Instead, these physical Things, the tabernacle and later temple of Old Covenant Israel, were graciously given to Israel, one, to facilitate the form of worship that was given to them in those days, and two, to function as signs or symbols concerning God in heaven, the way that He had made for men to approach Him, and the work that He would do through the Christ in the future to earn a new creation. And so do not misinterpret, brothers and sisters, as so many have, The purpose of the Old Covenant tabernacle and temple. To use the language of Paul in Galatians 3.19, they were added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Do you hear it there in Galatians? There Paul is speaking of the law of Moses more broadly. But I think that his words may be applied to the temple and tabernacle particularly. They were added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The tabernacle and later temple, along with all of the laws unique to Old Covenant Israel, were added for a time until the promised Christ was brought into the world through Israel to accomplish His work, the work of redemption. And when He came, He declared the temple, the physical Old Covenant temple in Jerusalem, to be desolate or obsolete. Christ declared the temple to be desolate and obsolete, not because He was against the temple, but because now that He, the Messiah, had come to accomplish redemption and to inaugurate the new covenant, the temple of old had served its purpose. And listen to this. With the transition from the old covenant to the new, there did also come a change in the law, a change in the priesthood, And also a change as it pertained to the temple. The temple of old was made of cloth, stone, and precious earthly things. The new covenant temple is spiritual. Its foundation is the anointed Christ along with the apostles and prophets who testified concerning Him. And and its stones are all who align with Christ and trust in Christ. Who have been made alive and filled with God's Holy Spirit. Do you not know that you are God's temple, 
and that God's Spirit dwells in you, Paul spoke and wrote to the church in Corinth. I'd like for you to imagine for a moment being a Jewish Christian, living in the days when Jesus walked the earth and shortly thereafter. Can you put yourself there, in their shoes? Growing up, you would have worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. You would have obeyed the ceremonial laws that were given to Israel through Moses under the Old Covenant. But when Jesus the Messiah arrived, He set all of those things to the side, not because He was against them, but because He fulfilled them. And I want you to imagine how difficult that transition would have been. It was a very abrupt transition. Some perhaps expected it and saw it coming. Others were not so prepared. It was a slow transition in some ways, though. The old forms slowly passed away as they gave way to the new. And the book of Acts tells that story. Read through the book of Acts and look for this theme. Uh, Look for the struggles that the early church faced as it pertained to the, the passing away of the old and the coming in of the new. By the year 70 AD, that glorious temple in Jerusalem was gone. The Romans destroyed it. They tore it down to its foundation, just like Jesus said that they would in Matthew 24. That must have been a very jarring experience, even for these Jewish Christians. They must, they must have wrestled emotionally with a sense of loss. Don't you agree? After all, they were raised under the Old Covenant. Those ceremonial laws were precious to them as they observed those feast days and as they worshipped at this temple according to the law that was given to Moses. The old had passed away and the new was coming in when Christ finished His work. But by 70 AD, that glorious temple, and it was very glorious, was utterly destroyed. It was raised. It was torn down to its very foundation stones as the Romans demolished that place in fulfillment to the prophecy spoken by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It must have felt like a loss. But my question is this, was it really a loss? Was it really a loss? Answer, no. It was not a loss, for something much, much greater had arrived. Christ arrived, and by His finished work, a new creation had entered in. It was then that the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh. It was then that God's eternal kingdom was inaugurated. It was then that God's eternal temple was begun. No doubt those Jewish Christians who lived during this time of transition wrestled emotionally with a sense of loss. But if their faith in Christ was true, they would have confessed that there was no real loss, but only gain. Indeed, the book of Hebrews is all about this. And Paul's words to the Philippians definitely apply as well. He was thinking of everything he had left behind as a Jew, according to the flesh, to follow Christ, when he said these words, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is Philippians 3, 8 through 11. That passage is very famous, is it not? Paul is considering his life prior to faith in Christ. He was a well-respected Jewish man, well-trained according to the law of Moses. He was zealous for the law. He even persecuted the first Christians. But he was brought to faith in Christ. Christ confronted him, opened his eyes, and drew him to faith. And what does Paul say concerning all of those things that he had to leave behind, all of that honor in the world, all of those customs and even worship, we might say, at the temple in Jerusalem? He says, I count them all as loss. In fact, to me, they are rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior is exceedingly more glorious, exceedingly more great than all of those things that I enjoyed under the Old Covenant. Once Paul saw Jesus for who He was, all of the fleshly, earthly things associated with Old Covenant Judaism seemed like rubbish to him. And this would have applied to the earthly temple too. As grand and glorious as that structure was, it was nothing in comparison to the surpassing worth of Christ His covenant, His kingdom, and His eternal temple. I've asked you to use your imagination and to try to see this through the eyes of a Jewish Christian living in the days after Christ's ascension so that you might enter into the struggle of of considering that which is spiritual and invisible as being far superior to that which is physical and even gloriously so. Do you understand the struggle for those early Christians, the ones who were raised under Old Covenant Judaism, it must have been a difficult transition. They were so very used to glorious earthly things, glorious visible things, glorious physical things, and worshiping with them. But all of that was taken away, and now they were worshiping Christ who they could not see once He ascended to the right hand of the Father. They themselves were called the temple of God, even though they saw no physical stones. It must have been difficult. But uh, brothers and sisters, I would, I would propose to you that we also struggle in this way. We also struggle with the fact that the church is not a physical temple, but is spiritual. Uh, brothers and sisters, many of these first churches were very small They would have assembled in rather humble buildings, sometimes in homes and sometimes in rented halls. And we know that these churches were often persecuted, sometimes very severely. That would have tested the faith of many of these early Christians, don't you think? I'm sure that many amongst the Jews were tempted to turn their backs on Christ and return to the well-established and visibly glorious ways of Old Covenant Judaism. This would have been especially tempting prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But those who knew and truly believed that Christ was far superior and that He had come in fulfillment to these visible and earthly things were preserved in Christ. They persevered. They, like Paul, counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus their Lord. And for His sake they suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish 
in order that they may gain Christ and be found in Him. As I've said, I mention all of this not only to encourage you to imagine how things must have been for those early Christians, so that you might sympathize with them, but so that you might also see that we wrestle with similar thoughts and emotions in our day. I doubt that there are any here in this congregation mourning over the loss of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, or longing in their hearts to see it rebuilt. Instead, I'm confident that many of us have sound theology that will prevent us from doing this. And we have struggled with the spirituality of the church and her apparent weakness and insignificance in the world in this new covenant era. That is really my concern, brothers and sisters, though I have just stated it not very clearly. My concern is that we do still struggle with the spirituality of the church and her apparent weakness and insignificance in the world in this new covenant era. The church, like her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, often appears to be small, weak, and insignificant in the world. Have you noticed this? There have been times when the church has thrived, both physically and spiritually, externally and inwardly, But those times have been rare in the history of the church. Did you know that? Those times have been very rare. In fact, I think that we have perhaps just passed through one of those rare times in the history of the church, where the church has thrived both externally and inwardly, both visibly and spiritually. But throughout the history of the church, the norm has been this. Christ's people have been a small minority. They've been very much unimpressive as it pertains to the world and to physical sight. In many of these cases where the church prospers externally or visibly, it is not in fact a sign of inward and spiritual health, but of spiritual sickness and compromise. Have you ever thought of this? We were just at a church last night uh, watching a, a basketball game. The campus was... Massive. It was quite a sight to behold, in fact. And I thought, my goodness, how, how, does, a, how does a church obtain this kind of wealth? You know, uh, how, do they, how do they obtain to have a, a facility like this? How does that happen? I know enough about the, the church and the denomination to know that they are thoroughly compromised and thoroughly worldly. So where we see these massive cathedrals, where we see these massive facilities, where we see the accumulation of great wealth in the church, oftentimes it is not a sign of health, but rather a sign of of compromise, a sign of spiritual sickness. I'm convinced of that. Brothers and sisters, we must see that Christ's church often suffers. She often appears to be weak and insignificant, And I would imagine that many of you have noticed this and have struggled with it somewhat. How do we interpret the weakness and suffering of Christ's church? How do we interpret the church's apparent insignificance in this world? If Christ, His covenant and kingdom and temple are truly better than that of the old, then why don't we see its glory? The early church wrestled with these questions as the old gave way to the new And I would argue that we struggle with these questions too, but in a different way. Again, given our sound doctrine on this point, we may not mourn the loss of the temple in Jerusalem or wish for its rebuilding. But is it possible that we, 
have erred from time to time by equating the health and prosperity of Christ's church with earthly prosperity, power, and glory. If this is the case, then it is our perspective that needs to change. We need to, we need to see the church, brothers and sisters, with eyes of faith. It is so very important that we do this. We need to see her as spiritual. We need to see her as, as the humble inauguration of something that will be consummated in glory in the future. Stated simply, we must know that the church is like her Lord. First, He humbled Himself and suffered for us, even to the point of death on the cross. And then He was exalted in glory. And so too, the church will first share in the sufferings of Christ, and then... She will be raised to glory when Christ returns to make all things new. The church is like her Lord in this regard. Those who do not know this or believe this sincerely will be severely tempted to turn their backs on Christ when faced with suffering because they love this world and the things of this world. Brothers and sisters, we must learn how to Look at the church with eyes of faith. We must see her as being primarily spiritual and so often humble and weak and insignificant in the world, trusting that the Lord in due time will raise His church to glory at the consummation. In fact, in truth, God's temple church is glorious. God's temple church is glorious, even if she does not appear to be glorious in this present evil age. Those who have been given eyes to see can see its glory and its beauty. I think that is true of most, if not all of you. It's true of me. It has taken me some time to come to this perspective. That's been a part of my growth in Christ, I think, uh, to, to learn to look at the church differently. Uh, to see its glory, uh, not in an external way, but in a spiritual way. Uh, We must be helped by the Lord in this, brothers and sisters. Those who have been given eyes to see can see its glory and its beauty now. It is not physical, it is not visible, it is a spiritual beauty that we must perceive. Christ Himself is the foundation of this glorious temple. How much more glorious and beautiful is the foundation of this temple than the one of old? Christ Himself is the foundation of this one. Those stones that were hewn from quarries uh, were magnificent. And yes, they were beautiful physically speaking, but they are nothing. They are rubbish in comparison to the foundation of the temple that now is. Christ Himself is the foundation of this glorious temple. And it is those He has redeemed by His shed blood who are its stones. The stones of God's inaugurated new creation temple are those who are aligned with Christ and trust in Him. Uh, These stones are far more precious, far more glorious than those stones that were fitted together to construct the temple of old. The stones of God's temple have aligned with Christ in that they have received His Word and they trust in Him They depend upon Him for the forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life. These do not trust in themselves nor in any other created thing but in Christ alone. This is what the Apostle Peter teaches in the passage we've read. In 1 Peter 2.4, 
Christ is called a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. In 2.6, Peter quotes passages from the Old Testament Testament which spoke of the coming Messiah in these terms. He, He wants us to know that he is not inventing this idea that Christ is the cornerstone of the new creation temple. No, he wants us to see that the Old Testament spoke concerning these things. And so he quotes from passages in the Old Testament. First, Isaiah 28.16, which says, For it stands, or Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter then remarks, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and here he cites Psalm 118.22, followed by Isaiah 8.14, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Finally, in this passage, Peter makes this comment, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter describes Christ as the Old Testament does. He is a living stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. But you will notice that Peter and the Old Testament scriptures also refer to Christ as a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Isn't that interesting? This one stone, Christ the Messiah, is called a cornerstone chosen and precious and also a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. He is both of these things. He is the chosen and precious cornerstone in God's temple upon which some will build their lives. And He is also the stone that others will be offended by. And in fact, they will trip over this stone. He is both of these things. And we might ask the question, how can Christ be both the chosen and precious cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and rock of offense all at once? Well, the difference is not found in Christ. We have one Christ, not two. The difference is in the way that men and women relate to Him. Those who see Him as God's chosen one, those who consider Him to be precious and believe in Him, will have Him as their sure and eternal foundation. As Isaiah 28.16 says, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And as Peter remarks, so the honor is for you who believe. Those who align with Christ and believe in Him will be blessed to have Christ as their sure and eternal foundation. These are the ones who are described in 2.4 with these words, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Those who believe in Christ and see Him as precious have Him as their foundation. They are the living stones, and Christ is the living foundation. But notice others reject Him. In fact, Psalm 118 verse 22 predicted that the quote-unquote builders would reject Him. Who is this a reference to? Who are these builders except the Jews themselves who lived in Jesus' day? We know that some Jews believed in Him. In in fact, the first disciples of Christ were were Jewish. But many, especially the leaders 
And through them, the nation rejected Him. They, they crucified the Messiah, God's anointed one. And why did they reject Him? Why did they consider Him to be a stone of offense? Why were they so offended by this Jesus, God's chosen and precious cornerstone? Why were they so offended by this one? And there were many reasons for it. One of them being that His stated mission was not to overthrow Rome. It was not to restore Israel as an earthly nation. It was not to maintain the Old Covenant, nor to promote and prolong the use of the earthly temple. Instead, Christ was very clear. He came in fulfillment to the Old to inaugurate a new covenant. He came to inaugurate a kingdom not of this world. He came to die, not for the Jews only, but for all peoples. He came to build, not a temple of stone, but a spiritual, eternal, new creation temple, consisting of living stones, quarried from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And many of the Jews were deeply offended by these things. And so they crucified Him. To those who are offended by Jesus and reject Him, He is not a cornerstone, but He is instead a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. He is the very stone that they trip over, leading to their eternal destruction. Jesus is one stone. He is in fact God's chosen and precious cornerstone, but some will build their lives upon Him by receiving and believing in Him, while others will trip over Him in their disbelief, and their fall will be very great. And then Peter adds these words of clarification concerning those who are offended by Jesus. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. That is 1 Peter 2.8. In verse 9, we learn more about these living stones that come to Christ, believe in Him, and are therefore being built up as a spiritual house unto the Lord. Why do these living stones align with Christ and believe in Him? Why do they come? Notice that the first word of verse 9 is but. This verse is meant to be contrasted with verse 8 which says, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But, but Peter says, you, speaking to believers, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Those who come to Christ to receive Him, believe in Him, and rest upon Him, do so because they were chosen by God in eternity. That is what Peter clearly teaches in this passage. They disobey they reject Christ. They are offended by Him as they were destined to do, verse 8 says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, etc. This is the doctrine of election or predestination that is found everywhere in the Bible. It is God who has chosen to save, and it is God who has chosen who He will save. Just as God chose to bring the Messiah into the world, 
and to preserve his precious and very great promises through the line of Seth, Enoch, Noah, Shem, Eber, Terah, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And just as he permitted the nations to walk in darkness in those days, so too has God chosen those he will save through faith in the Messiah, while leaving the rest to walk according to their sinful ways. This doctrine is very clearly taught in Scripture, brothers and sisters. God chose Israel in a fleshly way. They were given the covenants and promises. From them the Messiah was brought into the world, the Son of God incarnate. And God has chosen to save some from amongst the Jews and some from amongst the Gentiles through faith in the Messiah. For this is the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only foundation of God's eternal temple. Here in our passage, Peter picks up language that was commonly used to describe Old Covenant Israel, and he applies it to all who have faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. Again, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Indeed, his letter was addressed to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 1-2. He addresses his letter to the elect exiles of the dispersions. Many of these Christians were Jews. Some were also Gentiles. And he, he writes to them as God's elect, as God's chosen ones. We know that many of the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as they were destined to do. But some believed. And we know that many Gentiles, that is to say non-Jews, also believed. You can read the book of Acts to hear all about that, that movement that was begun after Christ ascended the Father and sent forth His Spirit. And pay careful attention to Peter's involvement in bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. He brought the gospel to them. He saw that they, just like the Jews who first believed, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was happy to report this to the church in Jerusalem. This story is told in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And I think it is an important background for the letter that Peter wrote, which we call 1 Peter. Peter was concerned to emphasize here in his letter that all who had faith in Christ, all who came to Him as God's precious and chosen cornerstone, all who believed in Him and were therefore being built up into a spiritual house from amongst the Jews and from amongst the Gentiles, were chosen by God. God, by His grace, chose to grant them faith in Christ so that they might be His chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Of course, they were not a race. They were not a priesthood or a nation in the way that Old Covenant Israel was. But Israel, the Israel of old, foreshadowed them in an earthly way. And so Peter uses these terms so that we might make the connection. What God did amongst Israel in an earthly and fleshly way under the Old Covenant, 
He was doing now in all the earth through Christ in a spiritual and eternal way. And Peter wants us to know it is all by God's grace. It is all because God has chosen. The doctrine of election is very important, brothers and sisters. It was taught clearly by Christ. It was taught clearly by His apostles and the prophets before. Here in, an in, in, in this instance, we must align with Christ and believe His Word. The doctrine of election is important for many reasons, and here are two. One, it produces humility, and it also increases gratitude. If it is true that we come to Christ to receive Him and believe in Him because God chose us, then there is no room for boasting, for our salvation is by God's grace from beginning to end. That is what Paul says so famously in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If the doctrine of election causes you to be prideful, then you have not understood it. Rightly understood, it produces humility, and it also produces gratitude before God as well. For we come to see that salvation is a gift from God in its entirety. It is a gift from God both in its accomplishment by Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago, and also in its application to us in time. It is a gift from God that we are saved. That leads us to the third observation about these living stones. And it is this. These stones are called to faith by the Word and by the Spirit in time. There are many scripture texts that speak very clearly about this. But the principle is found here in 1 Peter 2 as well. When did Christ accomplish our salvation and become the cornerstone of God's eternal temple? When did Christ accomplish this work? When did He become this cornerstone? When was the cornerstone set down? When was the foundation laid? Answer, Christ accomplished our salvation and became the cornerstone of God's temple when He lived on earth in perfect obedience to the Father, when He suffered and died in the place of sinners, rose from the dead on the third day, and ascended to the Father's right hand. That is when Christ became the cornerstone in God's eternal temple. It was all accomplished nearly 2,000 years ago. And when did God choose the stones that would be set on top of this foundation? When when did that happen? When did God choose the stones that would be set on top of this foundation? Answer, in eternity, before the creation of the world. This is stated in many places and in many ways. Paul's words in Ephesians 1.4 are well known. There he says that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So there it is stated very clearly, these, these spiritual stones out of which God's eternal temple would be constructed were chosen by God in eternity. But when are these living stones added to God's temple? That is really the question that is before us in this third point of the sermon. When are these living stones added 
to God's temple? When are they quarried and placed, if we may use that terminology? Answer, in due time, through the preaching of the gospel, as the Spirit works. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that there is an external call. That is the human proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be faithful to call people to faith and repentance, to preach the gospel to others. But there is also an inward call. That is the Spirit working inwardly to make a dead sinner alive. That is the Spirit of God working inwardly to open blind eyes and to unstop deaf ears. If I may build upon the teaching that was presented in Sunday school concerning anthropology and and the nature of man. Um, The Spirit of God calls sinners to repentance and gives them the ability to believe by regenerating them in the mind and in the affections and in the will. He calls us inwardly in this way by making us to be born again, to use that terminology. This happens in time. This is what Peter refers to in his letter in 1.3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, here it is, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you hear it? Peter is speaking to those who have faith in Christ. And he says, listen, I want to bless God. I want to bless our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I I want us to remember that according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. You did not cause yourself to be born again. What an absurd thought. But God has caused you to be born again. He has given you life. He has regenerated you. He has called you inwardly so that you might believe upon Jesus to the salvation of your soul. We may refer to this as a calling. That is how it is put in our passage for today. But you are a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you hear it? This is not a reference to the external call. This is not a reference to the simple preaching of the gospel. Yes, the external call must be present. The gospel must be preached. But here Peter is referring to the work that God has done. He is referring to the the call of God upon these Christians. This is God who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then he says, once you were not a people, to make it clear that he is writing to Gentiles, once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, speaking to that era of the old covenant when the nations were left to walk in darkness, but now you have received mercy. Uh, Peter wants us to know that we are in Christ. We are living stones built upon the foundation of Christ, the apostles and prophets. By the grace of God, He has chosen to make us stones in His eternal temple. He has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. And in fact, He Himself has called us in due time and has made us alive and has so placed us as stones in His inaugurated new creation temple. 
How are these stones made to be living stones, we might ask? They are quarried and placed as stones in God's eternal temple on top of the foundation of Christ, the apostles and prophets at just the right time. They are called to faith in Christ in repentance from dead works through the preaching of the gospel and the internal working of God's Spirit upon the mind, will, and affections. Many of you, if not all of you in this room today, have experienced this, and so you know what it is like. You can remember back to a time where you did not know Christ. You could remember back to a time, perhaps, where you heard the gospel repeatedly, but rejected it. Yes? But then at some point, you heard the gospel, and you believed it. At some point, you heard the gospel, and you understood it intellectually. Why did you do that? It is because your mind had been in that moment renewed, where it was not renewed before. Did you have a mind before? Yes. You might have actually been very, very smart before, just as you are now. But you heard the gospel and you did not understand it. You heard the gospel and you did not believe it, because your mind, in sin, was darkened. At some point you heard the external call. You heard the gospel. And whereas before the gospel annoyed you, it offended you, in fact... You heard about Christ, the cornerstone, and that stone seemed offensive to you. And so you rejected Him. You were not drawn to Him with your affections. You were, in fact, for a time, repulsed by Him. Perhaps you, like Paul, looked at the church and thought, these people are fools. Why would they believe this thing, this gospel? Perhaps you were like that for a time, but then you heard the gospel again, and all of a sudden, not only did you understand it, but you thought, I love this gospel. This gospel now seems beautiful to me. I get it. And it seems precious to me. And so instead of tripping over the cornerstone, you began then to build your life upon it by faith. You see. And we've already been describing what it looks like to have a will that is in sin and darkened. For this time you would hear the gospel and you would not choose Christ. You would reject Him, reject Him, reject Him. That's what you would do with your fallen will. You would reject the Christ over and over again. But at some point in time, you heard the gospel. And because God had done an inward work in you, because God had called you not only by the Word externally, but by the Spirit inwardly, you willingly chose Christ. This is what it looks like to be given the gift of faith. This is what it looks like to be enabled to believe upon Christ, you see. It is God who makes the difference. It is God who has determined to save, and He has determined to save between, by, by Jesus the Messiah. And He has laid that foundation. Christ is the cornerstone along with the apostles and prophets who testify concerning Him. And it is not only God who has determined to save, but it is God who, is, who has determined who He will save. He has elected some to be stones, living stones in His eternal temple. These will be those who worship and serve the Lord now and forever. These will be those who will enjoy the eternal presence of God forever and ever in the new creation. They are stones in God's temple because God has chosen them. And these are the ones who in due time have been called by God inwardly. They've been given the gift of faith. And in that moment, they have been quarried out of the world and stacked as stones in God's inaugurated new creation temple. Thanks be to God for His mercy and grace. The last point of the sermon asks the question, what is the purpose? 
What is the purpose for which these living stones are chosen, called, and placed as living stones within God's temple? These stones are being built into a holy temple, brothers and sisters, to worship and serve the Lord. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be, those words are important, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is our purpose. Look again at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is our purpose. We have been chosen and called and placed as stones in God's temple so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into light. We are to give glory to God. And consider the call to holiness at the beginning and end of this marvelous passage. Verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk, the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then our passage concludes in verse 11. Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the purpose statements here concerning why God has done this work? We have been set as living stones in God's eternal temple so that we might worship and serve the Lord. It is imperative, therefore, that we worship the Lord in the whole of life, as individuals, as families, as a congregation. It is imperative that we live holy lives before the Lord, not to earn God's favor, but because of what God has made us to be by His grace. It is imperative, brothers and sisters, that we see the church as spiritual and not as earthly or fleshly. There are many implications to this. We must see the church as spiritual and not as earthly and or fleshly. The way we think about the nature of the church will have an impact on so many things. One of the most obvious questions we might ask on this point is this, who belongs to it? Who belongs to the church? It is those who align with Christ, who have faith in Him, having been chosen in eternity and called to faith in time by the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works. It is those who make a credible profession of faith, therefore, who ought to be baptized and received as members of Christ's church. Stated negatively, it is not those of a particular ethnicity or lineage who are stones in God's temple church, but those who have faith only. It doesn't, I almost blush to say it in this way, but it might stick with you. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. It doesn't. That mattered a great deal under the Old Covenant. In fact, it made all the difference. All born to Abraham were partakers or members of that covenant. They were citizens of that typological kingdom, and they were invited to worship at that typological tabernacle and temple. This was true whether or not a person had faith in the promises concerning the Messiah, but it is not the case under the new covenant. This covenant, the new covenant, is pure. 
God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah concerning the purity of the coming new covenant when he said, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here it is, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Here is the great difference between the Old Covenant and the New Many within Old Covenant Israel did not believe the promises concerning the Christ. Old Covenant Israel was filled with disbelief and idolatry. At times only a small remnant of the true Israel remained. And yet all who were born from Abraham were rightly said to be members of that covenant and nation. For the covenant was earthly and fleshly. Under the Old Covenant it mattered very much who your daddy was. But not so with the New Covenant. Under the New Covenant, all are circumcised of heart. All are regenerated and all have the law written on their heart. Under the New Covenant, there is no need for one covenant member to say to another covenant member, Know the Lord. Do you understand this? We exhort one another in Christ. We encourage one another to grow in Christ and to persevere in Christ. But if you are a member of the new covenant, you do not need to be exhorted to know the Lord. Why? Because you know Him. It's what makes you a member of this new covenant. Under the new covenant, there is no need for one covenant member to say to another covenant member, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me, the Scripture says, from the least of them to the greatest. So this is not about ethnicity or genealogy or the flesh. It's all about faith. And this faith is a gift from God. Are there false professors within the New Covenant community? Yes. Sadly, there are. There will always be weeds intermixed with the wheat. There will always be goats and even wolves amongst the sheep. The Lord will sort all that out in the end. But we, brothers and sisters, are responsible to understand the true nature of Christ's covenant kingdom and temple in this present age. And we are to be careful to give baptism and the supper to those who make a credible profession. And this is what our confession says so clearly in 26.2. And I'll allow you to read that on your own time. Who belongs to the church? It's those who believe in Christ. And what should the church do in order to promote its growth? It's another marvelous question. What should the church do in order to promote its growth? We will consider this question in some detail in a future sermon. But for now, it will suffice to say that it will do no good to employ worldly tactics according to the wisdom of fallen man, for the church is spiritual. The church is spiritual. It will grow in depth and in size according to the will of God and the means that He has prescribed. We must simply be faithful, not innovative, if we wish to see Christ's church flourish. And what should we concern ourselves with? Faith in Christ, the proclamation of His gospel, and the worship of His most holy name.
For you yourselves are like living stones, or like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Can you see why it's important for us to understand the nature of the church, brothers and sisters? It has an impact upon so many things. May we be found faithful in this new covenant age until Christ returns or calls us home. Let us bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great work that you are doing. Give us eyes to see, O Lord. It is true that when we look around us, the church seems to be so very small and insignificant. We see some who go by the name church flourishing, but we're concerned about their method and their tactics, Lord. We're concerned about the purity of their doctrine or lack thereof. God, when we see churches that are pure, that are faithful, they seem to be so very small and insignificant. Give us eyes to see, O God. May we comprehend the work that you are now doing. And may we be found faithful, O Lord. I pray that we would not be easily swayed to move away from the mission that you have given to us or to stray from the doctrines that you have established. Help us, O God, to be faithful workers in this temple building project of yours. We are stones, but we are workers too. So help us to be faithful workers, O God. May we stray not from the foundation of Christ, and may we ourselves have our lives built upon Him, the true foundation. May we be aligned with Him. May we have faith in Him. May we persevere always to the glory of Your name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.